that have come in since I got ready for tonight. And I'm sorry, you're going to have to ask wisdom of God. Because I got to stop, and we're going to start Ephesians next week. And Ephesians is good stuff. Oh, man, it's good. Uh, I mean, in there, you're, ta- you're going to learn about warfare and, and putting on the armor and the fellowship of the church and the various offices in the church and how to walk in the joy of the Lord and that you were chosen before the foundation of the world and all kinds of things. It's really good. So be re- as a matter of fact, you might want to read ahead. Read just the first chapter of Ephesians. Just read it. And let's go together through that book and be edified. See what the Lord tells you about it before I teach it, okay? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now for these questions that have to do with the Word of God and you, Lord. And we pray for divine illumination. You will speak to us and minister to us. And we thank you for it, Father. And now can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. And give me wisdom from the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. All right, now, uh, let's go ahead now. Repeat here, but I I picked these questions that I know are universal. Uh, I try to get questions that, that, that more people than not are going to say, yeah, I've kind of wondered about that. And it gives me the opportunity to go into the Word of God and teach things that I just don't have a chance to do unless I get a question like this. So, and I try also to deal with things that um, are cultural issues right now. Can anybody say with me tonight, Pastor Jeff, I know like you know that our culture is under attack. Now, how many of you can say it's under attack like I've never seen? Can you say that? How many of you can say we're in a place I never thought I would see America in? Okay. Now that doesn't happen unless our thinking is affected. That doesn't happen unless the enemy has, has succeeded in propagating lies. So what I like to do is stand up here and pick things that were, that came in the form of questions that will give me the chance to, um, dispel some of those lies, expose them and dispel them and replace it with truth. So uh, let's do that, um, and I'm just going to start with the first question I, I grabbed out of the stack that I, I liked. It says, I often hear Christians say that they are unworthy of God's love. If this is true, why? In other words, why do they feel that way? My husband and I are both born-again Christians. He feels unworthy of God's love, but I don't feel unworthy of his love. Am I arrogant or what? And I'm going to say, no, you're not arrogant. Let me, how many of you have ever had trouble believing in God's love for you? Have you? Especially after you mess up, right? How many of you in here have never messed up? Sir, I want you to come down. We need an altar call. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Now, uh, I've experienced struggling with receiving God's love at certain times, but there are people who chronically struggle with this. They just can't really receive the unconditional nature of God's love. They have a real problem believing that God unconditionally loves them, not based on performance, but just because he loves them. And so I believe there's a variety of reasons as to why some people can readily receive God's love and others can't. I do believe the greatest reason is due to the hurts that we've experienced with our fellow human beings. I do believe that's probably the single greatest reason that what we do is we project what we experience with people onto God. And what we do, now here's a great big, uh, long theological word, but we anthropomorphize God. What that means is we turn God into a person, a, a human being, a man, and Anthropos is man, morphies, morph, we turn him into, we make him like us. So if people down here treated us badly, then we believe that he will be like them and that he treats us badly. He's mad at us. He doesn't accept us. He rejects us. 
he uh, doesn't believe that we have anything worth offering. We, we, so we anthropomorphize God. Let me give you an example. People who have had bad or abusive relationships with their earthly fathers tend to project that onto the heavenly father. Really easy to do. And I've talked to a lot of people that have done this, and, I, and I've done this. If our earthly father was excessively strict, for instance, we tend to view God more as disapproving and harsh. And what we do is we, we make our relationship with him based on performance and not just his unconditional, unrestricted love. I believe a lot of people are never able to come into the full truth of grace because they can't accept that God's love for them is not based on whether or not they perform well. That is, we walk the way we should, talk the way we should, do the way we should. And, and as long as we do that, then God accepts us. But if we start faltering or stumbling, then God no longer accepts us. Now, here's the newsflash. He loves you whether you're stumbling or walking well. Okay? By grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of work. See, that's the trap of religion. The trap of religion is it's all our performance and not his grace. Every cult in the world is based on performance and not grace. So we come to Christianity and it says, hey, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of your own works, lest any man should boast. It is a pure gift of God. So we read that and we go, that can't be. That's too good to be true, but it's not. It is God's love, which is agape love, which has nothing to do with performance. But if our dad was strict, then we, we tend to think, okay, God is strict, and so I better shape up and perform well, or he's not going to accept me. If our earthly fathers were abusive, we tend to expect the same treatment from any kind of father figure or authority figure, even God. On the other hand, if the authority figures in our life have been positive role models, it's far easier to, to transfer that trust to God. It just is. So I can't tell you how important it is, dads, that as best we can, we exemplify Christ. Unconditional love, mercy, compassion, patience. Because that's, whether our kids realize it or not, subconsciously, they think, well, that's the way God is. Because Jesus called him Heavenly Father. Now, the best way that I know to change the inability to receive God's love is the renewing of our minds. I'm preaching on this this Sunday in the second part of the series that I started last Sunday. Uh, now, I want you to read this with me because this is so key. This verse changed my life. Let me put it, take it even further. Doing this verse changed my life. So let's read it together. Be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It goes on to say that you might prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, don't just bypass that verse, but look at it closely. How is my mind renewed? It is renewed by the Word. And when my mind is renewed, what does it do to me? I am transformed. So, get this. We win or lose in much of life based on what is going on between our two ears. All spiritual battle happens up here. And as our minds are renewed, because you get saved and your soul is saved, but your mind is filled with years of garbage in, junk food, wrong thinking. And so once you're saved, and you've been born again, then God calls us to renew our minds. And as our minds are renewed by erasing the old ways of thinking and replacing them with new ways of thinking, then I'm transformed. I am literally transformed, which is the same word that uses, uh, we use to describe a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. So he's talking about a radical transformation. 
How does that happen? By opening up that Bible and reading it and thinking about what it said and believing what it tells you about you and life and the world and God and your position with him in Christ and who you are in Christ, all those things. That's the renewing of the mind. And so, so that's why I said a couple of weeks ago, it, dusty Bibles produce dirty lives. See, a lot of people have Bibles. We've got every Bible imaginable. I went to the bookstore the other day, a couple of months ago. It was time for me to get another Bible. And I couldn't believe all the choices. It was crazy. I couldn't make up my mind. I had to call for help. <laughs> What's this and this and this? And I had no idea because I haven't been to the Christian bookstore in a long time because I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, when I get a Bible, I stay with it. And I've been with this one Bible for, gosh, 20 years. And finally I said, I need a new Bible because it's so marked up I can't find anything. So I went and got another one. And I see all these choices. I said, Look at all these Bibles. And yet so many Christians are in defeat. What's the deal? Well, because they buy them and then they put them on a shelf and they gather dust. And dusty Bibles produce dirty lives. But he whose Bible is worn out probably isn't. So be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the ruining of your mind. The only way to do this is spending time in the Word of God, particularly in the areas that speak to your struggle. There is not a struggle we go through that the Bible doesn't address. Not one. Let me give you, for instance, in your husband's case, I'm talking to the woman who sent me the question. If I were him and I was having a hard time believing in God's love, I would spend time meditating in the things that Jesus said about God as our caring, loving Father. I'll give you a couple of examples. And I would memorize these verses and I would think about what they're telling me and I would run them through. You know what meditation is? It's like a cow chewing cud. He eats that grass and he chews and then he swallows it. But now I'm going to get gross with you. Later in the day, he brings it back up and chews it some more. Everybody say gross, but it's not gross when that's the word of God. See, in the morning, you read that word and you chew it and you swallow it, but later in the day, bring it back up and chew on it some more. So here's some examples. I know some of you are still thinking gross, but that's meditation. And so look what Jesus said. Don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Now, does that give you a positive view of God? I would me I rem uh, memorize that verse. Look at this one, Matthew 6, 8. Your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Does that tell us about a caring, providing God? I'd memorize that. And then how about this one, John 16, 27. I love this one. And this is right to this man, this woman's husband. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So he, Jesus is saying, as he loves me, he loves you. That's talking about the unconditional agape love of God. Now, if I'm struggling with believing in the Father's love, that's how I combat it. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly, worldly, but they are mighty through God to pulling down strongholds. Do you know what a stronghold is? It is whatever holds you strongly. You know what a stronghold is in the Greek language? The Greek language, it uses verbiage that means castle in the mind. A stronghold is like a fortress in your mind. It is thought patterns, faulty beliefs, unbiblical worldviews, and it's a stronghold. Now, when I think of a castle, I think of that moat and the drawbridge, and the whole idea is that the drawbridge is pulled back and the moat is full of alligators, and this thing that is holding you captive is in that castle, and it looks impenetrable unless you attack it with the weapons that are not carnal. Because when you, when you attack that castle, the belief, I don't believe that God loves me unconditionally, I just can't seem to arrive at that, then you attack it. You, you assail that castle with truth. 
And as you do, here comes the drawbridge down. God is able to get in. You avoid all the alligators. You go up into that castle. You go to the top where that idea is reigning supreme because that verse goes on to say it is exalting itself against you knowing God and pull it down and demolish that castle. And you do it by the word of God, the renewing of your mind. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the, the marrow of your bones. It goes into your innermost, innermost, and it discerns the thoughts and inner motivations of our heart. It sets us free. You shall know the truth, and it will make you free. So castles in the mind, castles in the mind. As you study God's Word, the old thoughts of rejection and disapproval will be erased and replaced with the truth about God's love for us. Isn't that good news? Can we thank God right now that His Word sets us free? Let's just lift our hands and say, Lord, thank you for the Word of God that sets me free. Thank you for the Word that sets me free. Now, if you've got a castle in your mind, give it to God right now and say, Lord, I give you this castle. I give you this stronghold. Help me to demolish it with the truth of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. I could go home after that one question. Now, let's look at this one. Next question. In Matthew, Satan transported Jesus to a couple of different places and made him see the kingdoms of the world. Remember that? Does Satan have the power to do that to us? This person asked me. What is the totality of his power with us? All right, let me answer this question. First, we need to read of the event. It's, a, it's an amazing event. This is Jesus in the wilderness. And let's read Matthew 4, 8 through 11. It says, Next the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Look what the devil said to our Savior. He said, I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. Well, the devil's gutsy, isn't he? Isn't he gutsy to say such an absurd, preposterous thing to God wrapped in flesh? <laughs> but he's full of pride. And, and what did Jesus say? Let's read it together. Get out of here, Satan. For the Scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and I love this. Angels came and took care of Jesus, ministered to Jesus, and this was the devil's final temptation before he boogied. Now, I like to call this confrontation between Jesus and the devil the showdown in the desert. That's what it was. The devil trying to stop Jesus before he entered into his ministry. Uh, in this battle with Satan, Jesus experienced three temptations, and the one we just read about was the last one. Now, we don't know for certain if Jesus was literally led to the top of a mountain or if it all happened in the theater of his mind. But what I do know happened in the theater of his mind was being shown all the kingdoms of the world. Because you can't see all the kingdoms of the world from one place. So the devil activated, played upon Jesus' imagination. And the question as to whether the enemy can do this with us is a great big yes, you better know he can. Satan always works in our thought life, and every temptation begins here. Every temptation. And the Bible calls temptations fiery arrows in Ephesians 6. You can just picture the enemy in hell pulling back a bow, fiery arrow on it. It's a temptation, custom designed for you to play on your weakness, to exploit where you have fallen before, and he pulls it back and he fires it and it lands in your mind and suddenly there, there you are, you're just cooking along and, and you have this thought that lands. And you think it came from you. But if it's a temptation, it did not. It's a fiery arrow shot, the enemy hoping that it lands and sticks in the theater of your mind and burns or, or causes damage, brings you to a fall. So all temptation begins in the mind. Now, usually temptation is accompanied 
with a visual. Jesus had a visual. He's up there on the top of this mountain, and suddenly he sees all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I mean, he saw the glitter, glamour, glistening, magnetic pull of the world in every sense of the word. And we too will get a visual in our minds of what it would be like to fulfill the temptation that the fiery arrow brought. Now, James gives to us a great description of the anatomy of a temptation. He writes, and here, here's what he tells us about temptation. Now, pay real attention to this because this is the way it happens. This is the anatomy, the breakdown of any temptation. Every person is tempted when he's drawn away by his what? Own desires. So, so much for Flip Wilson, the devil didn't make you do it. Temptation begins with your own desires. And you are enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to a sin child. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is grown up, brings forth death. And that's James 1, 14 and 15. I memorized that long ago. This is the way it happens. Now, first, notice we have an enticement. It begins with enticement. There you are, you're going along, you love God, you're in church, you're in there singing kumbaya with the rest of them, hallelujah, praise God. And, and, and you're somewhere, and here comes this temptation, whoosh. And the devil sends the arrow to appeal to your weakness that is already there. It's your, your own desires that he plays upon. And it is here that wicked imaginations, that's what the Bible calls them, come into play. We, we see a visual in our minds of what we're being tempted to do. We see a visual. And, and it's that vivid imagination. We, we visualize what the temptation would bring to us. I'm going to guarantee you no bank robber, for instance, has ever walked into a bank with a gun and robbed it without first seeing a picture in his mind of all the things he's going to do with that money. And he lives through the fantasy. And when he lives through the fantasy, then he finally succumbs to that fantasy to make it a reality. So a temptation begins with a, a thought, a picture, a visualization. And then if the, if the temptation succeeds and goes to the next level, we act on it to make what we have visualized come into reality. No alcoholic has ever succumbed to taking a drink without first visualizing a bottle and how he'll feel or she'll feel after drinking. Nor has a person involved in sexual sin ever fallen to the actual act without first envisioning it in the theater of his, his mind. It's not going to happen. You first see it. Now, this works in the good as well as the bad. When God gives you a vision for something, hey, everybody, you see it before you ever go to make it reality. So that's why the Bible says without a vision, we perish. You know, I've got a vision for where I, I believe this church is going to go. I've got a vision for where I want to be in five years. I've got a vision for what I believe God's going to do through Turning Point Church. It's very vivid to me. I, I am almost eat up with vision. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to keep seeing it and seeing it up here until it comes into reality as I step out in faith to bring to pass what God has caused me to see by faith. This is why the Bible talks about casting down imaginations, what I just talked about a moment ago. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So if it's an evil temptation, you want to bring it down. If it's godly vision, you want to stoke it and encourage it because it's of God. So first we're enticed. Then second, the sin is conceived what which means we, we have acted on it. The sin is birthed. The deed is done. Now it's too late to get out because the sin has happened. The time to win the battle is in the enticement stage, not in the second stage, not in the conception stage. The time to beat it is in the enticement stage. That's when you pull it down. That's when you recognize it. That's when you quench it. That's when you extinguish it right then. Now then finally, the act upon sin leads to death. 
which is what Satan was after the whole time. Have you ever noticed Satan never, ever shows you what he's really got in mind when you are first tempted? He only shows you what he wants you to believe are the advantages of walking through that temptation or following through on it and acting on it. He never shows you the end when you're weeping, crying, filled with regret, cut off from God, having lost so much. He never shows you that because he's a liar. So he doesn't show you this death part where sin has brought death. So, so in answer to the question as to whether we can experience what Jesus did in his third temptation, yes, we can and we do. And just as Jesus shot it down immediately by applying the truth of God's word, that's what we've got to learn to do. Follow his steps and deal with temptation when? Immediately. Because that's when you're strongest. You don't debate with a temptation, fellowship with a temptation, negotiate with a temptation. You bring it down in the enticement stage. There's an old saying that says you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Likewise, temptations will always be with us, but you don't have to let them take root. Can you say with me, I don't have to let it take root. You don't, but you better attack it when it's the enticement level because that's when you can beat it. That's where you can say with Jesus, get away from here, Satan. Amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. All right, now let's go to the next question. This is shifting gears a little bit, but here's the next one. This is a good one. Are God's will, Jesus' will, and the Holy Spirit's will separate, or are they the same? God's will, Holy Spirit's will, and Jesus' will are exactly the same. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost are three in one. The three together comprise the one God. Now, we see in Scripture that when one makes a decision... It's always in unity and agreement with the others. Always. For instance, in Genesis, we find God saying, let us make man in our image. So that's a plural being used. And it's using the words us and our. Now, immediately afterward, what happened? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created man, created you and me. They commenced together to create the first man and then the first woman. They worked in unison together. God said it, the Son amended it, and the Holy Ghost executed it. The Bible tells us that with Christians, we're told in Corinthians, that the Holy Spirit places God's saints, God's people, into the church and gifts them as he pleases. He who? The Holy Spirit. But do you think that the Holy Spirit puts a gift in you and places you in the church without God being able to amen it or Jesus amening it and being in total unity about it? No. They work as one, yet they are three, and yet the three are one. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. And God said it, I believe it, so that settles it. I don't have to understand it. Amen? The Godhead is a great mystery. Not easy to understand, and yet we know what the Bible tells us about it is true and it's trustworthy. Now, here's one I like. What's an easy answer to respond to an atheist with? My answer is there's not one. Let's move on. Now, let me answer this a little bit. We're in a day of a resurgence of atheism. You've got your best-selling authors, Dawkins, Hitchens, these various best-selling atheist authors. Do you know that 50 years ago, never would you have ever found a best-selling atheist author pushing atheism, never would you have found their books becoming bestsellers, ever. But we do now because America is in a slide away from God. So when there is a slide, it creates a vacuum, and, and nature abhors a vacuum, and the enemy always rushes into a vacuum that should be filled by God. So here we have these atheists, and they're coming on the scene, and they're usually scientists and usually high IQ'd, and everybody, you know, they speak with these English accents, and everybody thinks that they know everything, and they're so incredibly brilliant, they've got to be right. But the Bible says the fool 
has said in his heart. There is no God. But let me answer it. I really don't know that there is an easy answer because I don't believe there are genuine atheists. You heard me right. I don't believe there's one genuine atheist. Now, I believe there's a whole bunch of professing atheists. But what would you say if I told you I can prove by the Word of God tonight that there's not one real atheist among human beings? You believe I can prove that to you? All right, let's look. How can I say this? First, and I'm going to the book of Romans. Oh, I love Romans. I love Romans. Let's go to the book of Romans. Every human being, quote, this is Romans 2.15, every human being demonstrates that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. The King James says their own thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. If you do wrong, your conscience accuses you. If you do right, your conscience excuses you. Now here's what he's telling us. How many human beings did he say? All. He said, God's law is written in every human heart. Anybody who says, I don't believe in God, is going to have to explain something. How do they know right from wrong if they don't believe in God? Where do they get their morals from? Where their sense of justice and ethics are derived from? Where where do they come from? Because if there's no God... There is no absolute truth. So how do they know across cultures, in every tribe and culture of the world, that killing another human being is wrong? If there's no God, where do you get your sense of right and wrong? Where do you get it? What's telling you that stealing is wrong? Murder is wrong. Lying is wrong. What what does it? God has put his law in every human heart. Every human heart. Now, they can eventually sear their conscience where they don't feel the right and wrong. What what psychology calls sociopaths. A sociopath no longer has guilt about anything. They don't feel guilt. They don't feel right and wrong. They are are manipulators of others. They have no sense of right and wrong. But what what the world calls a sociopath, God's Word calls a seared conscience. But until your conscience is seared, you have built into you the commandments, the law of God. And there's no escaping it. It's in every human being. This passage informs us that every human being instinctively believes that a God of justice and righteousness exists, though they don't want to admit it and they can deny it all day long. But it's there. So say with me, his law is in every heart. Where do you think guilt comes from? Okay? Now, there's a second reason I can say I don't believe there's any true atheists. There's professing atheists. There's deniers of God, but I don't believe that deep, deep, deep down they really believe that. Here's the second reason. I don't believe in a true atheist because no human being can truly deep down in their innermost, innermost, deny the reality of a creator. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. So look at what Romans 1 says. This is so powerful. Men know about God. Can we read that out loud together? Men know about God. Period. He has made it plain to them. Men cannot say that they do not know about God. What does that do to the atheists? Men cannot say they don't know about God. From the beginning of the world, men could see what God is like through the things he has made. This shows his power that lasts forever. It shows that he is God. So a human being cannot deny deep down that what they see has been created by God. There is no denying it. There is a creator. Now, they can stand all day and tell me, no, you're, you're full of baloney. I don't believe there's a God. I believe in evolution. Uh, so you're wrong. And I answer to you, let God be true and every man a liar. The Bible just said no man could deny that there is a God based on the testimony of nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, and night after night they show forth the knowledge of God. 
There is no voice nor language where their voice is not heard. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Good preaching. Thank you. Okay? So let me tell you what I really believe is going on with so-called atheism or atheists. Paul goes on to write these powerful words. We see the anger of God coming down from heaven against all the sins of men. These sinful men suppress the truth. What do they do with the truth? They suppress it, and they keep it from being what? Is that going on in our schools today? Is that, is that read the mail of the public school system today? What is the school system doing? Suppressing the truth about God. What is going on with atheism is suppression of the truth. Men and women suppress the knowledge of God in their own hearts and minds by utterly rejecting him. They might convince themselves he doesn't exist, but I'm convinced that deep down they know that he is there, but they don't want to answer to him. They want to live the way they want to live. And so they suppress, push down the truth. Now, you can suppress the truth, but you can't do away with the truth. The truth will always rise to the top. Okay? So... I really believe that this atheist movement is a rejection of God, but I don't believe there's one genuine out there. Now, I'm like, when this goes on radio, I'm going to get all kinds of uh, response from this, and I might have some angry because, I've listen, I've debated atheists via Twitter and posts on the social web, social media. And, man, they're angry people. Woo, they're angry people. I, I ask them all the time, why are you so mad? I'm not mad, I'm glad. Why are you so mad? They're mad, they're furious, they're just livid. And I say, why are you so mad if your atheism has made you so happy? I just... Oh, they just they cuss you and curse you and criticize you and call you all kinds of names. I say, you know, you're reminding me of third graders on a playground who have no real retort for what somebody else said. So they just, na-na-na-na-na-na, well, you and, and you and you, you're this and you're that. Name-calling to me reveals weakness. Because if you're into name-calling, then you've run out of ideas, so you've got a name-call. So my experience with the atheists of our day, these, this new breed of atheists, is that they're real good at flinging mud, but not so good at logic. Atheists out there, I, I know it's coming. All right. Paul goes on. I got to read this. They did not know God. Or they did know God, rather. They did know God. Notice, every person knew that God was real at some time in their life. They did know God, but they did not honor him as God. They were not thankful to him and thought only of foolish things. Their foolish minds became dark. They said that they were wise, but they showed how foolish they really were. Now, these passages illustrate the sad decline of the person who chooses to shut God out of their life. Look what they do. They go from thanklessness to foolishness to darkness to idiocy in their thinking. And I ask you, church, you have a lot of high IQ people out there in our culture, and I'm not calling anybody dumb, but here's what I'm noticing. If you reject God and his absolute truth and you look for the truth within yourself, which the Bible says you shouldn't do because there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And if you reject God's truth, you will be reduced to idiocy in your worldview, in your philosophy. Good grief. Paul says, these, these brilliant Egyptians and, and even Romans and, and Babylonians and other people who, who rejected God ended up worshiping grasshoppers, creeping, crawling things, snakes. Is that idiocy? Bring me a cricket. Can you imagine? Most of you, you see a cricket. But they worshiped them. They worship snakes. They worship birds. They worship. So you're reduced to idiocy no matter how bright you may be. When you reject God's truth, it reduces you to idiocy, a reprobate mind. So is there any answer, uh, easy answer for the atheist? Not any of the atheists that I've ever known. We must pray that God delivers them, quote, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. 
Colossians 1.13. Let's move along quickly. I got a couple more. Y'all want a couple more questions? Okay. How do I answer somebody who doesn't believe the Bible was written by God without quoting the usual verse about holy men of old spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit? Without having to quote that verse in 2 Peter 1.21, how do I answer somebody who doesn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God? I would have to say that this person has never, ever truly studied the Bible. It's unique among books in so many ways and testifies to its supernatural origins so spectacularly that either they haven't truly read it or they weren't taught it right because the Bible is so clearly supernatural. Now, among all the options available for an answer, I would turn them to Bible prophecy as one of the great evidences of divine origins when it comes to Scripture. Unique among all books ever written, the Bible accurately foretells specific events in detail many years, sometimes centuries before they occur. And there we go, approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible. I think I read that a quarter of the Bible is prophecy. Let me say that again. A quarter of the Bible is prophecy. About 2,000 of those 2,500 prophecies have already been fulfilled to the letter without a solitary error. So goodbye Nostradamus and every other so-called prophet. The prophets of the Bible didn't miss the remaining 500 or so reach into the future and may be seen unfolding as days go by. And I personally believe we're watching prophecy fulfilled daily right now in our day, daily. Since the probability for any of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance averages less than 1 in 10, and that's very conservatively. And since the prophecies of the Bible are for the most part independent of one another, that is, you have 40 different authors contributing to the Bible over a period of 1,500 years, none of them were talking to each other to figure out what are we going to write and call the holy book called the Bible. But they wrote separately, independently of one another, yet none of the 40 clash. They are all in unity. They all agree. The odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than one with 2,000 zeros after it. In other words, that ain't going to happen. Next question. I recently read someone claiming in an article that Jesus never said a word against homosexuality. Is that true? Let me, let me address that. Is this a hot-button topic in our culture or what? Oh, Yeah. And, and I, I hear, I've heard people say this. So this question spoke to me because I've heard it said many times. You'll have uh, people who don't know the Bible come out, and, and, and they're bright. You can tell they're, they're literate, but they don't know the Bible. So they make these claims. So let, let's, let's look at it. While Jesus never said the word homosexual, he certainly addressed the issue in several places. So, yes, he did. First, when Jesus quoted Moses on marriage, he was affirming God's original intent for marriage. Look what Jesus said. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them, what everyone? Male and female. You reckon He had a purpose for that? He made male, He made female. So God was gender conscious. And God was gender intentional. And then having created gender, here's what he said their purpose was. He said, for this reason, a man, one gender, will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the second gender, and the two genders will become one flesh. So what Jesus did, he laid out God's original plan for the genders and for marriage. Follow me. I feel the hackles rising, and a few of you have been listening to the culture. Follow me. Okay? Let's just walk through this. Now, so Jesus quoted Moses there. 
Moses taught the Jewish people this, and Jesus quoted Moses. Not only did Jesus validate marriage between a man and a woman, he also stressed that God made the two genders purposely to be joined in marriage. Isn't that what he said? It's exactly what it said. This fact flies in the face of so-called marriage between two men or two women. You can't say in a marriage between two men and two women, you can't point to Scripture and say this was God's plan. You can't. Now, you can come up with your own ideas and say, well, as far as I'm concerned, if you love one another, that validates it. But you don't do that with anything else in life if you're a believer and you live by the Scriptures. You don't say, well, based on what I feel, what I feel invalidates what is written. Do you? In other words, well, I feel like stealing today. So because I really intensely feel it, then I'm going to do it because my feelings trump truth. Feelings never trump truth. Feelings are to be subjected to truth, submitted to truth. Truth trumps feelings. And our culture puts a premium on emotions and feelings. But God puts a premium on truth. Quiet in here. I'm glad this is the last question. So let's walk on through this a little bit. Secondly, when Jesus was speaking about the evils that come from the human heart, he included all forms of sexual sin by his use of the word fornication. So you cannot say he didn't address homosexuality because he did in the word fornication. Let me show you. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, and what next, folks? Adulteries and what? Fornications. Now those last two words are sexual sins. Thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, that's other stuff. But right in the middle... Of, of these evils that come out of the heart are adulteries and fornications. Those two are sexual sins. Now, the word fornication in the Greek language is porneia. Porneia. And that word is the root of the English terms, pornography, pornographic. It means a surrendering. This is what it means. A surrendering of sexual purity. Promiscuity of any and every type. So here's what it includes, incest, bestiality, uh, uh, pedophilia, sex before marriage, adultery, bigamy. It includes all sexual sin. That word is a catch-all for all sexual sin. So of course homosexuality is included because when Jesus used this word, he, he was including a, a, a sin, a sexual sin that was very prevalent in his day. It was prevalent all throughout the Old Testament. Look at Sodom. Look at Gomorrah. So, of course, that was included in his word, use of the word fornication. So did Jesus address homosexuality? Yes, by using the word fornication. If he meant to not include homosexuality, he would have said so. Hasn't he always been clear on everything else? Finally, just because the word homosexuality wasn't specifically spoken by Christ infers absolutely nothing. Let me ask you a question. Did he use the word incest? Thou shalt not commit incest. Did he ever say it? How about pedophilia? Did he ever say you shall not commit pedophilia? How about group sex? Did he ever say don't ever involve yourself in group sex? Well, then, then he must have been fine with all of them. You see the logic? So to say that this person said in writing that made our question ask her, ask the question, this liberal person who was very literate but doesn't really know the Bible, when they said he never addressed homosexuality, that's simply not true. And even if he didn't say the word, does that mean he's for it because he didn't say the word? Then we would have to also say that he's for incest and he's for pedophilia and he's for everything else because he didn't say the word. Ooh, that's an abrupt end. So let me, let me close by this. <laughs> that was abrupt. 
Let me close by this. Isn't it unfair, and, and it's not even, well, it's not at all good literary interpretation to say, well, because he didn't say it, then he's fine with it, even if he hadn't used the word fornication. But having used that word, it encompassed all the sexual sins in one, and Jesus said, this is the evil that flows out of the heart. So, of course, he spoke about it. Can we stand together? How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? All right. And I encourage you, if you don't agree with something I say, go, go study for yourself, really, seriously. Go look it up for yourself. Go get your strong concordance uh, or whatever, you know, Google it online, say fornication, Greek definition, and look it up yourself. And you'll, you'll see that it's true. So let's pray. Father, we thank you right now for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you for this very um, extended and fruitful time of answering questions. And we pray that, Lord, you will help us to walk in the truth of the Word of God, no matter what the culture says. For thy word is truth, Lord. And we lift our hands to him and just say, Jesus, help me to walk in that truth. Help me to walk in that truth. Help me to walk in that truth. Thank you, Lord. And we pray for our culture. As Isaiah said, Lord, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of their foot to the top of their head, we have become corrupt, Lord. We're losing our children, losing our teenagers, losing our knowledge of you. Father, breathe on America again. Breathe on this nation. Thy precious spirit. Send revival across this land. Let's sing, bless the Lord, all my soul, once before we...